This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Out of 50 years on the road in a legendary rock and roll outfit, what have you learned? To relax. And it's, it's a lot easier these days than it was in the beginning because we're blessed with the, um, the very helpful nature of um, tour planning with Mr. Google <laughs> and British Airways website and right. uh, a whole bunch of other tools that make putting tours together and then actually executing them a whole lot uh, less stressful than, it, than I seem to remember it was back in the 70s when, you know, you weren't really quite sure what you were doing on any one day. It was all a bit of... Um, bit of an adventure but these yeah. days you can plan something and be reasonably sure apart from the uh, apart from the security queues at the airport <laughs> you know, yeah. how, how the day is going to progress so by and large it's a lot easier and i think um, you can make it easier still by just learning to conserve your your energy and your you know reduce stress levels the time, yeah. the time when you need to really be switched on and focused is Two minutes before you walk on stage, yeah. and um, and that that's really the, the the key to it is timing everything. So you you get to that moment and you are a hundred percent ready for it, and and then afterwards you can you can return to your slug like um, rather boring um, anything but rock and roll state <laughs> of mind and, right, of and body. Yeah, I'm sure. In uh, when you were uh, your van broke down in 1971, Siri. And your iPhone could have been very helpful at that time, you know. <laughs> I think uh, I think it, it, all the things that we that we did take for granted today, and, and perhaps a generation of young people have never really known anything different. But yeah. given that I suppose the internet kicked in meaningfully in the late '90s in terms of sure. offering us the search engines and the information bases that uh, that we could access, so a lot of people, you know, born perhaps in the mid-90s onwards, you know, they've never really known anything other than that. Yeah. Even, even my children grew up, I suppose, at the age of three or four with the earliest of computers. And so perhaps all of their childhoods and all of their adult lives, certainly, they've been able to take for granted all, all, all of those benefits. And yeah. the frightening thing is, um, if they suddenly disappear, if that president from your southern border suddenly gets it into his head to um, really irritate Mr. Putin, then, yes. you know, things, things could just get shut down overnight. And sure can. It's, um, it's, um, it's in these days of cyber warfare and the, the potential for causing major mayhem and upheaval. I think it would hurt people perhaps almost more in the sense of robbing them of, of uh, access to mobile phones or the internet yeah. or or the power grid yeah. you know where would we be without electricity we'd all be we'd all be unplugged 
you'd have to have acute hearing and I would have to try and play my little guitar that little bit louder. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings me to the string quartet question because obviously 50 years on tour on the road, but you've also recently even been releasing music this whole time. About a year ago, uh, the string quartets was a release, which I'm assuming is a Jethro Tull uh, album uh, done with Jethro Tull music in uh, string quartet form. Um, I guess from a, a musician's point of view, uh, Ian, what is the hardest part in transferring your classic tall music into uh, a different genre like a string quartet? Well, some of the some of the pieces on that string quartet album already had some association with with um, string sections with a chamber orchestra, perhaps who were mm. part of the original recording. Others, of course, um, had nothing like that at all, and so. I think what you've got to do is, is strip things back to the essential musical components of, of, of rhythm, of harmony, of melody. Obviously, being an instrumental album, well, almost all an instrumental mm -hmm. album, then there's, there's not much in the way of lyrics. But I, I think you know, you, you're forced to think of things in their very fundamental way. And, and I, I rather hope that people, when they listen to the String Quartet album, that they they recognize old friends just wearing a, a radically different suit of clothes. Right. And it's, um, I think that's part of the fun, really, is to, is to recognize the essential musicality of different pieces and, and you know, dispense with maybe the, the preconceptions you have from listening to the, the rock band version. Right. But um, it was never really designed to be a, a mega-hit album, you know, some, that, that everybody would... You know, fall over themselves to 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 want to buy. It was you know very much going to be a an acquired taste for a relatively small part of our, our fan base. But um, it it did it did um, shoot to number one in the Billboard Classical Album Chart. So I suppose it uh, it did reach the spot in yeah. the sense of uh, making its mark. And it's something to tick off. You know, one of those things I had in mind to do. And finally got round to doing last year. Well, actually, the end of the year before, but it was yeah. released last year. So, it's it's um, it's um, you know one of the one of the little projects that you have a side project somewhere that you think well it'd be nice to do that before I before I get too old to uh, string quartet. Yeah. So how long did you have it in your head? Well, probably a couple of years, right. and then and then John O'Hara, our keyboard player, and I sat down to discuss possible songs, possible treatments, and we, you know, we had a few meetings while we were on tour, sitting in dressing rooms, sitting in hotel lobbies, and going through ideas, and um, and then we, uh, well, I looked for a suitable, um, a, a quartet who had the, the musical ability, but also the geographical availability, and the temporal availability. They had to be free at a certain time when we could possibly work together, and they had to be not too far away. So some ideas I had about maybe using uh, one, of the, one of the quartets I've worked with in the past in the Czech Republic, you know, a little bit too far to go when you can find a group of people who live um, 40 minutes down the road from, well, between John O'Hara and myself, in fact. So it was quite an easy geographical uh, mix to, to find those guys that and helps. girls. Yeah, and that they, helps getting they, it they, done, they too. Were, they were truly a you know, world-class string quartet, great, great musicians. Yeah. 
Jethro Tull uh, pioneered a lot of different things in music, and you mentioned uh, some of the uh, orchestra work that you did. Uh, but the most recognizable, obviously, is the flute, and and you made that happen. Like you made the flute rock, Ian. Um, have, have you ever witnessed uh, a band try and incorporate an instrument that just didn't work out? Because uh, I play the bagpipes, and let me tell you, I am looking for a shot. <laughs> well, you've um, kind of missed the boat, really. I think yeah. I've, I've used bagpipes, used the pipes on two songs yeah. in my in my life that I recall, and um, you know, it, it's one of those. Those difficult things to, well, apart from anything else, as you probably know, the the most common tuning for the pipes is somewhere oh, yeah. between an A and a B flat, and it's not really, um, it's not really a, a, an instrument that fits in with um, with the rest of the musical yeah. world. It, um, but you can you can get a chanter that's tuned perhaps to an A, uh, yeah. and then, takes a lot um, of jigging, but yeah, 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 and then you've got to obviously tune your drones accordingly, but. Yeah. Um, uh, a lot of pipers seemingly don't like to do that. They they like the traditional We're, Scottish uh, tuning, which is a halfway house. And really, it, unfortunately, if you have a, a perfect pitch, then the pipes are going to sound excruciating, excruciatingly flat to you. Yeah. And um, that's that. Therein lies a bit of a problem. But um, we for sure are in our own little bubble. You, I can de- tell de- you that. De- de- definitely are, yeah. and uh, usually you're only in the context of, of drummers. Yeah. So I think uh, I think pipe bands probably have the same drummer jokes as rock bands do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're, mi- you're missing out because you've got no bass player jokes. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> we have one bass, and it's a bass drum. Even okay. Uh, so. Uh, like myself, I was I I've been playing the bagpipe since I was eight or nine years old. I was kind of a childhood prodigy. But you you weren't a childhood prodigy at the flute, though, were you? Like, at what age did you actually start on the flute? Well, I had to reconsider that just today because uh, a track, uh, an, an old well, two old studio tracks that were that were discovered in the months before Jethro Tull began. We'd made some demos for a producer in London, and uh, nothing happened to them, but we recorded a couple of pieces which yeah. kind of surfaced in a, in a, you know, in a not, a not very good uh, um, copy of a copy form, but um, the, the gist of it is there, so they were going to be included as bonus tracks on the remixed and revitalized original Jethro Tull album, This Was, which is being released this uh, October to celebrate the 50th anniversary of its original release. Mm-hmm. Uh, one day out, one day out. These days they tend to release on a Friday. So um, that's coming out along with the tracks which I had to listen to today. And and I was reminded that there seems to be in the background a flute being played. Mm-hmm. And so I was asked the question, by the record company, um, so you actually were playing the flute in, you know, the uh, in the uh, latter months, summer, you know, or September or something of um, of nineteen sixty seven, and I said, no, I really don't think so. I seem to remember the first first note I ever got out of a flute was in December of nineteen sixty seven, and and um, really. Four or five weeks later, I was playing it on stage every night and, and um, from a standing start. So I'm positive it's not me. So it turns out there's also, on the tape box, apparently there is also an oboe 
as well as a flute. So there's almost certainly some session people that the producer brought in to decorate these songs a little bit um, after we'd recorded our our uh, band version of them. So I'm I'm confident that it was it was uh, December '67, and um, and I was 20 years old, hmm. and it you know it was a it, it was it was really just translating what I had played on electric guitar when I a year or two before when I was a guitarist, translating that into uh, into my um, earliest attempts to play the flute. So I, I I couldn't really play a pure note. I sang the note as well to reinforce the the note, and I developed that style of of trying to make a more forceful, aggressive sound, mm-hmm. which I suppose from January onwards, people were noticing, and it set us apart from the other blues bands at the Marquee Club, like Savoy Brown and Chicken Shack and the early Fleetwood Mac. Uh, we were the we were the band that had the guy who played the flute, right? And I, I know a lot of pro guitar players. Um, often they can't stop buying guitars. Do you have a massive collection of flutes? Not really, no. I, I have probably, out of the flutes that I play, um, that I would consider my top-line flutes, I, I have two of those. Right. And then um, I have a couple of backup flutes that are kind of student model flutes, That, that um, one of which I will always take with me on the road in case my main, uh, rather better quality flute should, for some reason, mm-hmm. suffer uh, illness. Then I have a, I have a, a backup. Right. Got one of my one of my backup flutes from a few years before um, did leave my side and managed to travel uh, close on a million miles um, because it was um, it was uh, in orbit around planet Earth on the International Space Station for six months and and um, it came back to me in uh, in three pieces just as it just as it left. Oh. Um, three pieces because you take them, take a flute apart into right. three pieces to put it in the case. And mine was smuggled aboard a, um, a Russian rocket, cargo supply rocket that uh, took it up to the space station, and it came back on the on the second last ever uh, space shuttle mission, and um, and made it safely home. And it sits um, carefully uh, locked up in uh, in a room in my in my house to this day. But you know, I'm, I'm not someone who collects things really for the sake of collecting them. I like right. to use them, and I, I periodically sell things off if I'm if I'm really not going to use them again. I don't see the point in amassing piles of stuff. I mean, I, unfortunately, I say that, but but like everybody, I do amass <laughs> piles of stuff, and it's um it's a good a good plan, particularly with things that quickly become redundant. Yes. Um, you know, I have an iPhone four, five, six, and ten, and of course, yeah. the only one I use is the 10 what am i going to do with the others the, it's, I, I just feel guilty about um um you know putting them into a landfill site and um yeah. you, you always have that feeling maybe maybe just one day i <laughs> want to use them again i'll do but, something with them maybe there's something important on them that i forgot to remove or transfer the data over or something well yes and i and the fond thought that you might donate them to a to a, an excited grandchild forget it yeah. because if you if you if you try palming off an iphone 4 or 5 on a on a grandchild they're going to look at it and say 
I want the pen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't have the facial recognition or whatever. You don't want me to go to school with an iPhone 4, do you? I'll be the <laughs> laughing stock of my class. Not that my grandchildren are perhaps quite old enough to use the term laughing stock, but, you know. Yeah, of course. They are. They are fairly small. Well, the 50th anniversary tour hits Toronto Bud Stage July the 3rd, Jethro Tull. It's incredible, the lasting influence on future generations of musicians that you have had. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of fans out there who are also pretty famous in their own right. Uh, have you ever been imp- approached by a, like a celebrity with some praise or surprised uh, by a fellow musician's fanship that you weren't aware of? Yeah, you will actually see... Uh, one, two, three, three of them will pop up on the big screen behind me who who revealed a secret uh, um, love for some of Jethro Tull's work. So yes, they, 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 they are amongst my uh, pop-up guests on the Ooh. big video screen. And, and of course, the, you know, it's very flattering to hear that, but you've got to remember, you've got to be logical about it. None of us just have one or two influences. We sat and wrote the names down, there'd be at least 50. So in that context, I am but one of many influences that, you know, some given uh, household name rock god happens to uh, consider of some some modest part in in his or her own um, musical upbringing. But it's nice to hear. And what I'm really doing on this tour, really celebrating not only the repertoire of of Jethro Tull, but celebrating the 36 other band members who've been uh, (laughs) over the years with me. That's true. There's a large list. It certainly is. And four of them are on stage with me, of course. But the, um, you know, it is a long list. And I, I rather like to try and give them all, you know, some little reference points. So at one time or another, you'll catch a glimpse of all of them. And um, that's, Kind of a nice, nice thing. They're yeah. traveling around the world with me, but uh, I'm not having to pay for hotel rooms or catering. Yeah, it's a large. That's a large group to drag around with you. Yes, it's a large virtual group. <laughs> Do, did, will the story of people podcast is now available on the Crier Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. 
Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.